Welcome to Digication Scholars Conversations. I'm your host, Jeff Yan. In this episode, you will hear part two of my conversation with Jennifer Sparrow, Associate Dean of Academic Affairs at City University of New York's School of Professional Studies. More links and information about today's conversation can be found on Digication's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Full episodes of Digication Scholars Conversations can be found on YouTube or your favorite podcast app. I wanted to um, sort of go back to one more thing, which is, you know, aside from open educational resource, it's the credit for prior learning as well. See, open educational resource. I think we all get, you're saving students a lot of money. We're probably refocusing some of the, what's important in the classroom anyway, all good. I have heard institutions that talks fondly on the concept of um, credit for prior learning, but they don't want to do it because it's actually bad for business in some cases. Um, You know what I'm talking about, Mm -hmm. Jennifer? Mm -hmm. Right, because what you are basically saying, hey, if you had ten years of experience already, you know, running finances for a small, small yes. like ten small businesses, you know, you you essentially, you know, um, in the smallest of business that you're their bookkeeper for the bigger business, you are their CFO for the last ten right. years. You figured out how to do this. You're trying to get a degree in accounting. And I'm going to make you go sit in a class. Do we really need you? Do we really need you to go through the the process of taking the the accounting 101 courses? It feels unfair. It feels not right. But for some schools, they go, no, 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 no. If we don't let them do that, guess what? We just wasted a year of tuition that is revenue that we would have given up. Right? I've heard that. But I think a, a different way to look at that is to okay. look at it from the point of view of the returning adult who maybe say they have 30 credits, right? And they're coming back and they want, they have to get to 120. So that's 90 more credits, right? You're taking, you would, you would, you're because taking, you want to save those 30 credits, yeah. you, would not, you, would, you would give up the 90 that you would have gotten. But, yeah, right. Because, and so 90, you're going to take maybe two courses a semester if you're lucky. How many yeah. of those people are going to just give up after a semester or two and just say, this mountain looks impassable, I can't climb it, <laughs> right. right? So I think it's, it's smarter and beyond being smarter, it's just the right thing to do to uh, respect the learning that, especially that adults and really that everybody brings with them um, and help them receive credit for it without having to buy a textbook and spend 15 weeks and and take so long to get their degree. Um, We started the program in 2014 and I've this is still preliminary, but um, I'm looking now at like a four-year graduation degree for our 16, 17 cohort and trying to compare, and this isn't scientific yet, but trying to compare the people who have credit for prior learning versus those who don't. And the the three-year graduation rate, if I'm correct, is like 15, 20% higher. Like they're really graduating. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. And we've been, for the last few years, something that I do feel confident in saying is that we've been tracking um, we've been tracking the overall percentage of our undergraduates who have received some form of credit for prior learning. That's at about 15%. But when you look at our graduates, 
almost 30% of our graduates have received credit for prior learning. So I think they're the ones who are who are making it across the finish line. And right. it's also- And in just, some sense, by the way, um, sorry to interrupt, oh, but okay. for those, of, those who are saying we're missing the initial, you know, those, those 30 credits, yeah. you know, you're also getting, you know, people who are less engaged. So they're actually not finishing anyway. So right. they're, they're missing yeah, the last they're 30 credits. Mm-hmm. And then it's just a <laughs> failure all around, right? We right. failed yeah. because the student didn't graduate. The student didn't finish what he started. Yeah. Everybody feels bad. Um, you know, I, I'm a big credit for prior learning, uh, booster. And before I got so busy with all the other things, I was teaching our credit for prior learning, um, class for a while. We, we still need back up for a minute. We started out working with the council for adult and experiential learning, and they offered a course that our students could take. And then they had, uh, faculty in different disciplines who could evaluate the portfolios that were submitted as credit for prior learning portfolios, because there's different ways of getting credit for prior learning by exam, by portfolio, Mm -hmm. by having credentials that have been evaluated. Um, And then in 2016, we started teaching the course ourselves, but we're still using um, the Council for Adult and Experiential Learning, still using their faculty evaluators. But Mm -hmm. then in that busy year of 2020, Kale um, decided they were going to sunset that program. And so then we had to figure out how we were going to be able to do our own in-house portfolio evaluation. Um, and we've actually started using um, education e-portfolio. So the students take the course. Um, as they're going through the course, they're learning how to make, th- they pick a syllabus and they say, mm-hmm. okay, I already have accounting experience, so I'm going to write a portfolio and demonstrate that I already know and I already can do the learning outcomes of that accounting Mm -hmm. course. Um, So they actually write to the learning outcomes and then they put everything in the e-portfolio. They are able, they have to upload some kind of supporting documentation or evidence for each learning outcome too. It could be could be a letter from it could be a performance evaluation it could be a budget it could be any kind of work product and then we have been training our own faculty evaluators then to use our rubric and to score the portfolios so we've yeah. been doing that for a, about a year now um, that's so awesome i'm really glad yeah. to hear that has worked yeah. out and it's really working out great yeah it's really great to to hear that it's you know being being used in such innovative ways and but I, I, I want to now go back to one thing that you said, which was not only is it the smarter thing to do, which I agree with you, but it's the right thing to do. And yeah. I think that's why you get these great people around you, because you are doing the right things. And it wouldn't matter. I mean, you clearly you're smart, so you figure out how to make <laughs> it work anyway. But you, was, you start with, look, this is the right thing to do. There are people in the world that are in this situation where, look, they don't have, you know, they didn't have a degree. They should get a degree. They're good enough to get a degree. They just don't see the point of doing a semester of, you know, boring stuff Mm -hmm. that doesn't apply to them. So let's drop our ego that they must go through this. Otherwise, it doesn't count. And let's have them have a go at proving that. And then, you know, we'll let them come in where they, where they need to be. So to me, this is where I really feel like that's one of the amazing things that you and your colleagues have done as PS, which is, you know, A, you, you're 
you know, obviously you're always looking out for the students, things like, you know, open education resources, et cetera. It's, it's all about that. You know, otherwise you don't have, you don't have a lot of incentives. You could have passed that buck onto the students and say, mm-hmm. look, we require this book, take it or leave it. Right. Um, right. And it is, you, it's more work for the profs. You know, it's yeah. not, it's not that it's, it's not that the work has just disappeared. You know, it's the institution and, um, right. Uh, you know, we have the Office of Faculty Development Instructional Technology where Karen works and, you know, they have to do, they run workshops in how to find OER yep. resources, how to build the course. You know, we have to stay on top of it, you know, and yep. go through it's all the links work. every semester to make sure nothing yeah. broke or changed. Yeah, right. it's a lot of curation. It's much more work than just saying, this is the text, yeah. <laughs> go buy it, right? Um, and, and, and I think, I think that there's something, you know, like, it, everything that you do seems to be just very focused about like how am I going to make the students experience a little bit better? And again, the, our original premise was school should <laughs> that's that's the job of the schools. We shouldn't you be doing that all the right. time? But it, it's so easy to get get um, stuck in the way that things have always been, and right. and therefore you don't you you're not able to do that. Now, you had also a lot of experience with, um, I think you talked about general education, maybe outcome assessment um, as well. Yeah. Um, how has that changed over over time? The outcome assessment, I've been, I was much more really hands-on with it in, um, in when I was overseeing general education directly, which I'm not anymore. But uh, I really, we had a way of doing this, of bringing, um, this was kind of before COVID, but we would collect samples of work across different sections, uh, you know, create a rubric, norm the rubric and bring faculty together for a day. And actually we're doing quite a bit of this now remotely to get together and, um, you know, read through a set of papers and kind of double score them and then come up with, you know, like, see how we're doing. And and we never, I, I guess a shift in the mindset is we never really thought about it, in ter- like, to get people to think, okay, you're not grading the student, you're actually grading, we're grading ourselves, we're grading, how well did this course do in teaching the things that it's supposed to teach. So it, right. it became a really great um, faculty development tool. And because or faculty development experience, and because our courses are all, they're online and courses like one course, even if it has multiple sections, it's, it's cloned from a parent course, right? So if I'm running five sections of professional writing, they all start from this, they all are basically the same with different instructors. Mm-hmm. Um, so it gave us really good information about, plus the feedback from the profs about what needs to be changed, you know? So everybody came together after the assessment and said, okay, we need to make these changes in the course. And so it, it was really a great, like that was closing the loop. It was really a great cycle of doing the assessment, kind of having findings and then being able to act on the findings by updating, uh, by yeah. changing the course. And I really do think that your leadership skills comes in really handily on something like this. I think a lot of schools try to do the same thing and maybe they and literally follow the, you know, the, 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 the procedures, you know, sort of step by step, yeah. but can't do it because 
you know, the nuance, the devil, the, the, the sort of the, the devils in the details, you know, like how do you get faculty to not think of it as, Hey, you're just using this as a judgment like of busy me, work. Yeah. Right. Or like, you know, sometimes it turns a lot more like into accountability, but when does the accountability of how well this class do turn into is, does it mean that my position is in the chopping block? Are you going to replace me? Right. So there's a lot of that, that I think goes into, goes into what you do. Um, and I, I must say that I love the credit for prior learning thing that you do, but I must say that some of this assessment sort of experience probably bring in some aspect of that credit for prior learning. Absolutely. Yes. The outcome driven, you know, out, so it brings in the level of sophistication that if you, without that, you know, general assessment experience, you might not have been as, has done as well to students as you are guiding them to do their own sort of um, assessment of themselves and on these the, outcomes. The other interesting connection to sort of what I would consider, you know, kind of traditional outcomes assessment and credit for prior learning is that when we're when we're asking, um, when we're, we're basing a portfolio on the learning outcomes from a syllabus, from a course syllabus, it's really important that the course syllabus outcomes be measurable and be something that can be demonstrated. Mm, yeah. So it kind of forces writing better learning outcomes because if your learning outcome is, you know, appreciate blah, 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 then you're not going to be able to assess it because you can't really assess appreciation. So it, like that focus on the verbs and on is it um, in one of the sessions I went to, they talked about can do statements, like something that you can do, um, then you're, then it's not going to be a, the syllabus won't be a good candidate for a portfolio. And that's a shame because the students, you know, it's closing out the students options just because we didn't write the syllabus so well. Um, although in, in general, you know, we try to steer people toward exams if they want to do, if they want to demonstrate competency in, in more in the liberal arts, like English or, um, or history and portfolios are, work better for things like computer information systems or accounting or principles of marketing, things like that, things that are more applied. Um, so what? I have one other thing I wanted to say about um, about credit for prior learning that I'm really happy about is that we are now offering, um, we're using language exams that are online proctored exams that Brigham Young University out in Utah has. And with those, we have are now able to offer language exams in 25 different languages. And um, this That's is amazing. amazingly empowering to uh, Russian, Lithuanian, Cre Haitian Creole, uh, Mandarin, uh, I, I, I can't even think of them all right now. But so people who come in, and I think this is such a big deal at CUNY because we have so many people who come in speaking a language other than English. And we're very quick to say, oh, you know, you need to take remedial English. You didn't pass the reading test. You didn't pass the writing test. But then we don't, we do not generally turn around and say, oh, but hey, you really, you already can read and speak Spanish. So we're going to give you credit for that. What happens a lot of times to the person who can read and speak Spanish is that they get to take a higher level Spanish class. So I think that's, you know, we talk a lot about equity and that's really treating, it's treating someone who's a native speaker of another language worse or more unfairly than we're treating a native speaker of English. Um, mm -hmm. 
So being able to award those credits for uh, for different languages, um, the students have been very, very happy about that. And we've had a lot of people I, I think that it's, a, it. it's huge. It's huge. You're, you're able to, and, and by the way, there is that accountant who <laughs> may not speak English well, but right. might have been very competent otherwise right. in accounting, mm-hmm. right? So it, yeah. it, it's not being able to speak well in English doesn't, doesn't have any correlation to their accounting skills. And, right. and I think that that's, um, it definitely, you know, rings, rings true. Now, uh, there's one thing that I'm very excited about when you're talking about sort of credit for prior learning. Aside from what you need to do practically to, you know, get people to, to, to build a portfolio and improve these other kind of things that they do, or that these are the things they know and these are the evidence of the, mm-hmm. you know how you know they know this. To what an extent, I feel like that a lot of that concept can be taken out of the credit for prior learning context and be pedagogically uh, applicable to all kinds of courses and regular, you know, sort of mm-hmm. assignments that one can one can think about. Um, right? It doesn't have to be about, hey, if you knew this, you just need to prove it. It uh-huh. could also be conceptually what can be applicable to everyday teaching and learning in courses that are not about prior learning at all. Don't you think? Well, um, I don't know if you're thinking about, because this is something I've been thinking about, so I'll just say it, um, is about competency, <laughs> <say> yes. <laughs> uh, competency-based uh, education. Because one of the things that I found uh, kind of frustrating about credit for prior learning is that it tends to be all or nothing, right? You either you have to pass the exam or you have to, you know, pass all the learning. You have to satisfy all the learning outcomes on a syllabus. But there are a lot of people who come in maybe who if you're looking at a 15 week course or say you're looking at seven learning outcomes. What if somebody is very competent and able to satisfy already knows five of the learning outcomes, but just doesn't know two of them. So right, right. I'm I'm really interested in competency-based education that would let people work through work through a course at their own pace with, you know, with support, with help when they need it. But the ability to be able to kind of go more quickly where you feel confident and you know things and then slow down and take your time and have more resources for the parts that you still have to learn. Um, I think that is another really promising um, direction for us to go because I'm more and more. I'm kind of questioning why 15 weeks or you know why why this structure? Why is well, it the so lumping, The lumping of these things sometimes doesn't mm-hmm. make perfect sense. Yeah. Um, it's convenient from a scheduling standpoint. Mm-hmm. Right? At some point, somebody to figure out logistics, and those are the logistically what seem to have made sense. And um, like you were saying before, now we have the ability to do asynchronous, you know, learning mm-hmm. the high flex kind of model. Yeah. And why why are we still sticking with this sort of lumping of, you know, things that may not have been naturally uh, even doesn't have to be a fit. They were yeah. they were just kind of conveniently put together right. at some point. Um, and why why aren't we rethinking? I think that's very legitimate way to 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 consider. I also think that I must say that there is one aspect of I am a 
generally a fan of the competency-based sort of, you know, approach. Mm-hmm. I'm also weary about one aspect of it that I, I've had a difficult time reconciling. And I'll tell you what, maybe you know, because you're smart. <laughs> I, when I, when I was, um, uh, years ago and I was teaching at uh, Rhode Island School of Design, which is where I started, you know, teaching and developing the education. Um, yeah. One of the things that was a bit of a weird sort of model and bit of, bit of a weird culture at our school was that in some cases, we don't really have a set learning outcome for everyone in class. And if I will give you the example here, and that would be if you had Picasso in your class, <laughs> he decided to go through a blue period, he would totally <laughs> flunk any color theory courses completely, right? Is that true? I mean, is that good, right? <laughs> so our point really was a little bit about this idea that as professors, as people that might be even thinking about the curriculum in very deep and hopefully with coming with a lot of experience, there's still this sort of sense of, do we need, are we the official sort of guide to, in order to be called, you know, good at being a painter, you must know these, you know, eight things. And if you're competent in all these things, now you're a painter, but if you're competent in seven things, you're not a painter. And what if you happen to be, you know, that really, 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 really good at the second and the third thing? The other things are all sort of average or maybe not even up to par. Can you still be called a painter? Um, and I think that there is always that argument of, well, you don't want a doctor to not being able to only be able to kind of do surgery. You kind of want them to completely be able to do surgery. And I get that. Uh, but I don't think that it's it's right to always use that doctor's, you know, sort of uh, right model for everything. So I don't know. I mean, um, to me, I, I feel like that there's, there's got to be some interesting push and pull on even the, what constitutes like being the official set of competency. And I right. would really can, can get behind that, I feel. Because it's kind of arbitrary. It's, I mean, not it in is. all disciplines, right? Like yeah. not maybe in medical medicine or in something very technical, but other times yes. it is. And I have thought about this. I mean, I've only ever, I've my, spent my whole career at CUNY. Um, so I don't really, I don't really know other schools. And I guess a piece of this that worries me is that our, our public institutions or places like CUNY being kind of put under more of a microscope about, you know, you have to have learning outcomes and you have to demonstrate that the students have mastered these learning outcomes before they move on. Is that, is that a way of, that CUNY has to do that or, or, or we have to do that at public institutions because there's a question about whether our students there's, are really good enough. Because we don't want you to just so willy-nilly say, all right, right, you don't have to do this, you can't do this, and you get a degree no matter. Right, and I remember right. going to an assessment conference once and listening, I'm not going to name the college, but listening to how the president of the college was talking about, oh, well, this is how we do assessment at my you know, $80,000 a year private school that's very highly rigged. And I was shocked because it was so... Um, you know, students just wrote something and then the professors sort of, you know, it was very 
not what I would call, not what I'm used to with assessment. It was much more free form. And I thought, wow, that's really the difference between the people who got into her college are already almost prejudged as being competent. And the people who go to my college are being held. You have to earn it. You have to prove it. it, Right. And so, and that's something that makes me feel very uncomfortable and sad about. Yeah. It's a lot to try to figure out. And I will say that, you know, when we were, you know, sort of thinking about that for our own experience at, at the school and I was teaching there, I taught there for a number of years. And and what what seems to have been evident for us, I mean, our students were very, very dedicated and they just work incredibly hard. So for us, there is almost like no wrong approach. We don't need mm-hmm. everyone to know how to do everything. But it was more of a, if that's where you want to go, you better take it to a really rigorous level. So the rigor in which the, mm-hmm. you know, the level of rigor that they reach in that chosen interest of theirs. So if you want to do blue, fine. But <laughs> you be better really do 500 blue paintings, you know, so that you really become mm-hmm. the world's, you know, sort of, you know, expert at blue. But here's the deal for us is that, we th- we think that that's good because we think that actually like that's really a, one of those situations where we felt like there are too many things in the world to try to focus if you were actually mm-hmm. try to learn everything in fact you you're not going to be rigorous in any of them you are just kind of be mm-hmm. like you know i've touched on this a little bit and um, you can be but, shutting off some really great thing from right consideration right. so for us it was about like if you're going to you're going to spend time on this and be really good at it. One of the value is that you've now had experience at being the best in the world at this one thing. Just like I know, I know I've heard like people that would go, um, they would hire, you know, people who had been Navy SEALs or Olympians, not because, you know, sometimes they're like, yeah, that, but I understand that this person is going to get things done. Not because of all of this, you know, this, yes, the discipline and all of that, but also because they've had the experience going from a novice all the way to the best, one of the very best in the world. And that is, is a, is a learning journey that you can't discount because having had that experience means that if they want to learn something new, they're going to figure out a path to be able to do that. Whereas if you've never had that experience, you will you would sort of like flat out, like you 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 get um, plateaued at at some level because you don't know how to push yourself through to that next level, you know. So that's kind of a little bit of how we had thought. So so we would we would and 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 I by the way I do think that you can sort of if that was the case you can readjust the competencies. Right in the competency-based, you know, environment, mm-hmm. you can readjust the competency so that the competency is not about the subject matter as much as it's about the experience of the being process, able to learn something. The experience, in the yeah, and that suddenly turns that competency-based piece to be something really interesting. You know, I like that. Right. Thank you. No, please don't thank me. You're having me think through this too. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> that's why we're having a conversation. And, <laughs> Um, I know that you have to run pretty soon, um, Jennifer, but, um, any, any sort of, um, 
sort of closing thoughts. I know that, I mean, maybe we need to just have another session with you another time, but I know that there's a lot of things that's happening, you know, in higher education. I mean, you talked a little bit about equity. We talked about obviously COVID, you know, what happened and the change of modality and the different shifts in, you know, models of all, all kinds of things from, you know, curriculum to, you know, 15 weeks versus, you know, something else. Um, are there other are there things that you want to, you know, sort of close us out with? Some thoughts and some ideas of what, what what comes to mind as being, you know, pressing in the world of higher education in at SPS? I guess, well, I don't want to close on a on a depressing note, but I think the other piece, and this 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 fits in with what we've been talking about, about why 15 weeks and why this and why that is um, is the general need for higher ed to become more nimble and flexible and able to able to change more quickly. Um, you know, I think I've been doing a lot of work on um, kind of non-credit to credit pathways. Um, this is credit for prior learning, but looking at training that's done by by boot camps and different tech providers, um, like Perscolis Empower, some of the um, that serve opportunity youth in the area. And they're doing, you know, they're working really closely with industry and they're changing their curriculum up and they're, they're making sure that their graduates have got, you know, the most current skills and knowledge. And I sometimes despair at kind of the slow pace of curricular change um, in higher ed. And I worry that if we don't kind of figure out how to become more flexible and responsive, we're going to, you know, be replaced in some cases by these other, by these alternative providers that are doing a fantastic job. I think that's really um, a good observation. And I think that there is something, I think you're absolutely right. I think that there is also something about um, the, I, I don't know whether it's because of higher education that there is always this constant need for, you know, a curriculum, I mean, to get a curriculum revised is a, oh is, I mean, no one wants to do it, you know, <laughs> it's like, I've done it. To change, it really the, change the title of a course takes a semester. Yeah. Changing a title of a course <laughs> needs to be approved by the board of trustees who don't even know what the subject matter is Crazy. about because that's not even what they're trained in. Yeah. Right? It's really, um, and that so isn't even really changing the, rubber, the curriculum. Yeah. Right. The rubber stamping process yeah. is, is getting a little bit re, sort mm -hmm. of ridiculous. I think that you're absolutely right in that. And I would say that the only thing is is that higher education does have, I mean, the reason that it hasn't been replaced, in my opinion, so far, is that the boot camps are, are very actually new to teaching and learning. And there's mm -hmm. actually a lot of it was focused on content, you know. So, yes, we're using the right programming languages. We're using the right, you know, um, stack of technology or software or what have you. And that's what, you know, the industry is using and therefore we are moving to it quickly. But I think that the, what higher education typically are able to provide more is some of the more sort of, like you were saying before, the critical thinking skills and some of those other things that... The, theori that, the theoretical under... Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just a little bit harder. So I think that, you know, we got to somehow make that bridge a little bit better. Yeah. Um, I think you're absolutely right, though. You know, like for... Um, you know, if you're in a school of journalism today and and you are not able to at all address the needs for what a current journalist is gonna have to need you know, to need, you're not you're not gonna your students are not gonna be able to work, 
Mm-hmm. You know, they they need to understand social media, whether it's for good or for the bad. Right. You know, um, they need to understand these things, and the world is changing and changing quickly. And and if you don't have a a way to do that, I think is really difficult. Um, and I would argue that to be the case for almost all disciplines. Really, it's not just In you know way or another. it seems yeah. obvious. It really changes very quickly, you know, and and that's because the speed of you know information travels so quickly today that, you know, and and it's 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 a level the playing field as well. There's more people being able to invent more things, discover more things, and publish them more often and 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 quicker. Yes. Um, and so, by themselves without having to go through any <laughs> gatekeepers. Right. Right. Yeah. So so that becomes uh, an even more important. So I maybe that's. Maybe that's where we should end on is that higher education really need to f- go through that same level of critical thinking skills that we think yeah. so much about for the students to yeah. decipher fact versus fiction, you know, and, and decipher what's important and what's, you know, what's, yeah. what's the fad to be able to make those decisions and then speed up that sort of uh, efficiency. Um, the world's yeah. efficiency has changed a lot. I mean, you know, if NASA is still working at the same speed as they were before, they wouldn't be launching much of anything. You know, mm-hmm. they've had to push themselves too, right? Um, so um, I think that, you know, we, we could do it. Well, thanks to people like you who are, you know, always and fighting. And people like you. <laughs> oh, come on. All right. Well, um, Jennifer, it's wonderful catching up with you. It's actually been a while. So yes, I think it has. It's really great to to chat with you and uh, i hope that we get to do this again soon but if not um i'm sure that i will continue to be talking to folks at sps you have just yes. just amazing people and, and uh please keep Me up too. the good work and i want to continue to hopefully you know really stay involved with all these cutting edge things that you do great it's good talking to you too jeff all right take care okay bye bye This concludes our conversation. To hear our next episode, be sure to subscribe to Digication Scholars Conversations on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. The Digication Scholars Conversation series is brought to you by Digication, a technology platform powering the most innovative e-portfolio programs in K-12 and higher education. Our website can be found at digication.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please like, subscribe, and share with a friend. Thanks for tuning in.